Bay Hills Community Church is pleased to have you join us as we continue our series, Truth and Dare. In the past few weeks, we've been looking at the covenant established between Abraham and God. Today, lead pastor David Fossil asks us, how will you deal with questions and doubts in your journey of faith? Listen as he gives us some pointers for how to deal with our faith when it comes face to face with doubt. I have not made a big deal about it, but uh, my I've got a kind of an elbow issue and problem, and so actually in a week from now, I'm going to be having surgery uh, to fix it. I don't know what they're doing, going in, cleaning it out, everything. And so in the process of getting ready for surgery over the last week or so and th- coming up this week, uh, I've started to got, uh, get a lot of uh, calls from Kaiser as they're doing pre-op admit- admittance stuff. And so I got this one call this past week. And the nurse says, Mr. Fossil, yes, I, we need to confirm a couple things on your chart and on the computer screen as I'm, I'm reading this just to make sure we have everything the way it needs to be as you're getting, we're getting you ready for your surgery. And if you have 10 minutes, you could help. Yeah, no problem. She goes, uh, let's, let's, first of all, can I confirm that your medical record number is? And she reads it off. Yeah, that's me. And, uh, can I confirm that you, um, you still living up? Yeah, that's me. And, uh, can, can you please confirm you're still married to Sandy and she's your emergency contact? Yep. You have three kids, yes, and this goes on and on, and finally it gets kind of to the end, and, and she says, okay, last couple things I need to just double-check and confirm. You, you, you've not had any, it says here that you've not had any surgery in the last three months. Um, you're a U.S. citizen, and uh, you can tell she's reading from a screen. She goes, and it says here that you have absolutely no religious affiliation. And I said, really? She goes, yeah, it says you have no religious affiliation, you have no faith. And she said it just like that. I said, Really? I said, that's kind of interesting. I said, because I'm a pastor. And you would think a pastor would need that. And she goes, yeah, you do. And then there was this long pause on the phone. And she says, where are you, a pastor? And without missing a beat, I said, Valley Bible Community Church. That's where I pastor. I was was looking out for you. I didn't want you guys to look bad, you know. So uh, apparently Kaiser doubts and has serious concerns as to whether your pastor has any faith. Um, but, but Kaiser and us and pretty much the whole world does not doubt when it comes to Abraham's faith. We are in, in a series on the life of Abraham uh, called Truth or Dare. And you see kind of the tagline right at the top, Abraham's journey of faith. So it doesn't matter what story you're in. We're in it. Hey, this is our third week. We got a couple more to go here. And, and uh, no matter what we look at, we're, we're looking at who Abraham was as an individual and how he related to God in this journey of faith that he was on. And one, I got to tell you, one of the things that was that's encouraging to me is that it, it, even even since chapter one, when he's first introduced, chapter twelve, when we first start looking at him, um, he he's dealing with some serious issues and problems and doubts and questions, and he's by far that by far a, a perfect man. And it takes Abraham, a hero in of the faith according to the Bible, and makes him normal. And and, and he he struggles with issues. That I, that I struggle with and that you struggle with. That today, if you'll grab your study guide, you're going to see that what we're dealing with today is Abraham and his doubts. He has serious doubts and he has questions. And literally, he's wrestling with God in terms of, are you really good and are you really going to work this out in my life? And so we're going to look at it this morning. If you have a Bible, um, Genesis chapter 15 is where we're going to start. Uh, this is one of the weeks that I especially like being a pastor and studying because um, I'm going to try and take 15, chapter 15 and chapter 16 and, and do it all in one week. So you got to work hard to figure out how to organize it. And so I want, I really encourage you to put your thinking caps on because it's going to get a little bit complex at parts. But what we're going to cover is so significant and so helpful to your journey of faith. Not just Abraham's, your journey. Here's how the story starts. Verse 1, chapter 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? I don't have a son. And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You've given me no children. So a servant in my household will be my heir. And what you see is, is Abram right at chapter 15, he's struggling. He's wrestling. Uh, he, he's afraid and worried about something. 
And, and we're not told exactly what it is, but we are given a hint as to why he's concerned and why he's struggling. And it's the first two words of verse one after this. So something happens in chapter 14 that causes Abraham to become all concerned and all worried and and he's just pulling his hair out. So if you have your Bible, you just have to go back in chapter 14 and you have to look at the story. This is one of those chapters we don't we're not going to devote a whole Sunday to it. But real quickly, what's going on there is that Lot. Abram's nephew is living in this one city and these four kings come and they attack the city and they take all the stuff and they take all all the people and they rush them off as slaves. That's what happens. Now, Lot is a punk. He is a bum, but he's still Abram's nephew. So Abram's like, oh, geez, I got to do something about this. So he grabs in chapter 14, he grabs some of his kind of Navy SEAL type guys that he's got in his camp and they go off in the middle of the night and they have this incredible um, just really risky, really daring attack on, on the camp at night. So they rescue Lot and a bunch of people and they take them back. And so at the end of chapter 14, everybody's giving Abram a high five. You're the man. I can't believe you did that. Yeah, look what we brought back. Lot's back. Oh, you're awesome. I can't believe you did that. So he's, he's feeling really good about himself. At the end of chapter 14, at the beginning of chapter 15, he's kind of sitting there having breakfast with a cup of coffee. He's like, what did I just do? What 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 was I thinking? Because these four kings, when they realize what happened, they're not going to roll over and play dead. If these four kings and they attacked two cities, they're certainly going to come after me and my bunch of shepherds that I have. And that's what he's afraid of. And so as chapter 15 begins, he he outlines three concerns, three worries that he has. Let me show you. Let's put it on the screen. Number one, he's concerned about physical retaliation. He's concerned these kings are going to come and attack him. And that's why God says, Abram, I, I'm your shield. I'm your protector. I know you're afraid about what others are going to do to you. I'll, I'm going to protect you. Well, if they attack, they're certainly going to burn my tents and they're going to kill my animals and destroy my crops. He's concerned about financial stability. And God is like, Abram, no matter what happens to you, I'm, I'm going to be your very great reward. Literally, that word is treasure. I'm going to be your, tr- I'm going to take care of you. I, I got this. But by far, the thing that he's most concerned about is that he's childless. At the beginning of chapter 12, how the whole story starts, God says to Abram, I'm going to, I'm going to multiply your family. You're going to be a great nation. And here he's in his mid to late 80s and he has no kids. And he says, God, do you understand what's going to happen if I don't have any kids? Uh, this, this, this guy called Eliezer. He's my chief of staff. He's the guy that runs everything in my household. He's going to take over. He's not a blood relative. That's where I'm at right now. I'm concerned about this and I'm worried about this. You know, when I started to see what Abraham was worried and concerned about, what he was struggling with, and I look at that, isn't that exactly what we struggle with today? We're concerned about our physical well-being, whether it's a bum elbow or a back that's giving out or the cancer that might come back. We're concerned about our health or we're concerned about our financial stability. You know, the the economy isn't really bounced back yet. And there's, you know, there's a lot of people in our in our church, you know, that are struggling, that don't have work and are struggling. And we wonder, are we going to make it? And even if you do have a job, you're looking at your bank account and you're looking at your 401k and this is not where it should be. And you're looking at the value of your home. And we worry about this. And who, who, who of us doesn't worry about family? Maybe you're single and you're wondering, am I ever going to meet someone that I can connect with and get married? I'd like to do that. And I'm worried about that wonder. And then when you get married, you're wondering if we're going to last, you know, and then if you get divorced, you worried if I'm am I going to be lonely? And if you have kids, you're you know, I wonder if are we going to have kids and then you have kids and you're you're concerned about them with when they're young. You know what? Even when they move out, you don't stop worrying and being concerned. Do you? You know, 4,000 years later, life hasn't changed that much. The great man of faith is concerned about his physical well-being, about his financial status, and about my family. And God says to Abram, okay, that's your problem. I got a solution. And it's this new idea that I'm going to introduce to you called faith. I want you to trust me. I want you to trust me. And, and, and here's here's what we read as the story goes on. Verse four, let's put it on the screen. It says the word of the Lord came to Abram. 
This man will not be your heir. This chief of staff you mentioned, he's not going to be your heir. But a son who I will give you, who is of your own flesh and blood, he will be your heir. I will prom, I will give you what I promised you. And so a, a God took Abram outside and he said, look up at the sky and count the stars. So this is happening in the middle of the night. If you can indeed count them. And he said to him, so, so shall your offspring be. And you, you've got to read between the lines what's happening here. It's the middle of the night. It's 2.33 in the morning. And Abram can't sleep. You know how those nights are. You're tossing and you're turning and you just can't get comfortable. And for Abram, it has nothing to do with what he ate last night. It has nothing to do that it's too hot or it's too cold. It has everything to do that he can't shut off his mind. You ever had nights like that? Where, where there's something going on and you're, you're concerned about something going on at work or you're concerned about something going on in the family or you're concerned about something going on with your health or there's some problem that needs to get fixed or... And people are depending on you and they're looking to you to fix it. Or you have nothing to do with how to fix it and then you feel out of it. And your mind just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going and your body is tired, but your mind keeps you up. And that's what's going on with Abram. And finally, in the middle of the night, God nudges him and he says, Abram, Abram, get up. Let's go outside. Abram, get up. So he quietly gets out of bed. He tries not to wake his wife, Sarah, and he... He opens the flaps of the tent. He goes outside. He closes them so there's not a draft. And Abram's like, what? God's like, I, I know what you're thinking. I want you to do something. I want you to look up at the sky. Now, we, we in the Bay Area, we, we don't quite get to enjoy the, the stars because of the, the city lights. But you know how it is when you've ever gone camping or you've been out in the middle of nowhere and it goes dark and you look up and those stars are just so bright from the bottom all the way to the top and all the way to the bottom again. And Abram looks up and God says, can you count them? And Abram's like, well, of course I can't count them. And God says, that's exactly how many descendants you will have. Trust me. Trust me. What we have next is what is considered to be possibly the most pivotal verse in the entire Old Testament. What John 3.16 is to the New Testament, Genesis verse 6 in this chapter, chapter 15, is to the, New, to the Old Testament. This next verse is when Abraham gets saved. In this one verse, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans takes five, six, seven chapters and explains one verse. That's how big a deal it is. We're going to do it in 90 seconds. First service is a lot godlier than second service. <laughs> and it's proof to you that God's word is simple enough so the kids over in the in our kid area can understand it. But it is complex enough that you can spend an eternity trying to figure it out. I'm going to show you and break it down for you real simple. This is what it says. Let's put it on the screen. Verse six. Abram believed the Lord and, it, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Three words. Three comp, uh, co concepts that are world and life changing. The first is the word that he, that he believed. Now, when we use that word, I believe this, I believe that, we use it in an intellectual way. The, the issue and the problem for many of us as American and Western, Westerners is that in this book, when the word believe is used, it does not mean just intellectual understanding. It means a trust. It means trust. It literally means faith. So it's saying that Abraham had faith. He was willing to say to God, I trust you. I trust you and and I'm going to obey you. A working definition for faith to trust and to obey God, regardless of consequences, what happens to me or circumstances, the mess that I'm in necessarily. I'm going to trust you. And so Abraham had faith and God calls you to faith. And if you have faith like Abraham had as best as you can, what you get is you get something credited to you. We all understand when someone calls us on the phone and says, we, we're going to credit your financial accounts $1,000. We can all understand what that means. In this case, it's not a financial credit. It's a spiritual credit. And God says to Abraham and he says to you, I'm going to credit your spiritual account. I'm going to give you something you don't deserve. The New Testament literally calls it a gift. It's the concept of grace. It's when God gives you something you don't deserve. There's nothing you have done to gain this. 
you're a nice person, but you're not that nice. I'm going to give you something. It's called grace. Your spiritual account is, 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 is added to. And what you get is you get salvation. Or what the Bible refers to as righteousness. That, don't let that word confuse you. That's just a big Bible word, a church word. It's a good word. It's an important word. But the only thing righteousness means is right there. It's having a right relationship with God. There's no doubt that God loves you. That's not the issue. The issue is, are you part of his family? And that doesn't happen. You don't get salvation until you are credited with grace. And you don't get a credit of spiritual salvation or grace until you have faith. So you're willing to say, I trust you, God. I trust you. You know, there's all kinds of different kinds of faith uh, that, that I hear in church. One, one is we just kind of talked about it a second ago, is intellectual faith. And there's this, I, you, I hear it all the time. People that think if I know this book, I understand most of this book. I can name off the name, the books of the Bible. I, you know, a couple verses. I can, I, I understand. I got it. The assumption is, is if I got it between my two years, I'm in. Not so quick. Let me ask you a question. Do you think Satan believes that Jesus was the son of God? Do you think Satan believes that Jesus died on the cross for mankind? Do you think Satan's going to be in heaven with us? Is belief important? Yes. Does it get you into heaven? Absolutely not. Satan believes all those stuff and he's not going to be there. Big difference between having it here and having it here. I also hear people that I'm going to, I don't know what else to call optimistic faith. Have you ever run into those Christians that Everything is good and everything is great and there's never any problems and I don't have any questions and I don't have any doubts and on and on and on. They're just kind of floating on the clouds with angels and with Jesus playing harps, you know. And the assumption is when you share a struggle, they're like, hey, 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 have some faith. You know, like you've done something wrong because you're wrestling or struggling. And you know what? All you got to do is read the resurrection stories right after Jesus comes back. The disciples had doubts. I think genuine faith is saying, I trust you in spite of everything I'm going through, in spite of all my questions. Now, I I will say there's also not only optimistic faith and uh, educational or intellectual faith. There's one I don't know how to call this risky faith. And I hear this the most at Christian pastors conferences. Here's how it goes. If you're not doing something crazy for Jesus, if you're not jumping off a bridge for Jesus, if you're not living your life in a way that if he doesn't show up, your life doesn't go to the crapper, you're not living in faith. That's how they make it sound. And what they've done is they've taken business motivational principles and inserted them into the church and in the Bible. And I read this book and I'm like, where do, where, where am I supposed to do that? I'm supposed to jump off of bridges? I'm going to give you a personal example from this church. When we were putting a bid on a building, we had enough for one building. And someone came to me and said, heck, let's just buy it all. Well, we can't afford it. Doesn't matter. Let's step out in faith. Really? Is that how it's supposed to work? Do you really think that's how it's supposed to work? Because you see, God, yes, I completely understand a step of faith. But he also gave you a brain. You see where I'm at on this? So it's not educational faith, and it's, and it's not risky faith, and it's not optimistic faith. Biblical faith. Biblical faith says, I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to obey you, in spite of consequences, and in spite of circumstances. There's not a lot that I've given you to fill in blanks on your, on your, uh, on your, on your notes, but this is one thing I really want you to jot down if you're writing notes. The issue in the Christian walk and in our faith journey is not whether you'll have questions or whether you'll have doubts. The issue is when you have doubts, when you have questions, will you trust God anyway? Will you obey him in spite of your doubts? In spite of your questions? In spite of your problems? Someone sent me this story a while back. Let me just read it. It says a man named Jack was walking along a steep cliff one day. He accidentally got too close to the edge and he fell down. On the way down, he grabbed a branch, 
which temporarily stopped his fall. He looked down and to his horror saw that the canyon fell straight down for more than 1,000 feet. He couldn't just hang on to the branch forever. There was no way for him to climb up the steep wall of the cliff. And so Jack began to yelling for help, hoping someone passing by would hear him and lower a rope or something. Help, help, is anyone up there? Help. He yelled for hours, but no one heard him. He was about ready to give up. And he heard a voice. Jack. Jack, can you hear me? Yes, yes, I can hear you. I'm down here. I can see you, Jack. Are you all right? Yes, but who are you and where are you? I'm, where are you? I am the Lord, Jack. I'm everywhere. The Lord? You mean you're God? That's me. God, please help me. I promise that if you get me out from here, I'll stop sinning. I'll be a good person. I'll serve you the rest of my life. Easy on the promises, Jack. Let's just get you down from there and we can talk. Now, here's what I want you to do. Listen carefully, Jack. I'll do anything, Lord, anything. Just tell me what to do. Okay, Jack. Let go of the branch. What? I said, let go of the branch and I'll catch you. Trust me. Just let go. There was a long silence and finally Jack started yelling again. Help, help. Is there anyone else up there? (laughs) You ever feel like Jack? God, what do you want me to do? God, where do you want me to go? God, what do you want me to accomplish? What direction? God says, go that way. That way? Yeah, no, I'm not sure I want to go that way. It's dark. It looks like it's rough. It's difficult. I have questions. I have doubts. I don't think I want to do that. And we ask for God's guidance. And we ask for God's direction. And we say, and we want to be a people of faith. And then when he tells us which way to go, we balk. And like Jack... We ask, is there any other way? We just sang a song. We sang it three weeks in a row called Oceans. And in that song, we've all, we all just sang it. That lead me to have trust that is without borders. Lead me to have trust without borders. In other words, give me faith. Give me the ability to trust you so that I don't have borders. I don't have margins. I don't have a box where I say, God, you could take me this far, but if you ask me to step outside of the box, I'm out. I'm tapping out. And God says, that's not the kind of faith I'm looking for. I'm looking for people that are willing to obey me and trust me, regardless of how much it costs. To obey me and trust me, regardless of what your friends say about you. To obey me and trust me, regardless of what it affects your career. To obey me and trust me, even though you don't have to get the same standard of living that you really want. To really obey me and trust me without borders. Without a margin. Without a box that you and I put God in. Are you willing to do that? God says to Abraham and God says to you this morning. Now, the story goes on, and, and I'm just, I don't want you to write this down necessarily. I just want to give you some handles to see how the story is progressing. Here, here's where we're at. Let's put it up on the screen. Abraham has a problem. He's worried and concerned. God gives him a solution. I want you to live by faith. But then Sarah comes up with a suggestion. This is his wife. And her suggestion is maybe we should take life into our own hands. Let's take matters into our own hands. Because, you see, God isn't working fast enough. God isn't taking care of issues quick enough. And if he doesn't know what he's doing, we should help him out. And so now you have the next story in chapter 16. Now, I'm going to tell you this before we read it. Um, If I'm writing a biography about my family, this is one story I leave out. This is a Jerry Springer story. You're like, what is going on here? There's paternity stuff going on. It's an absolute mess. But they come up with a suggestion. And here's the suggestion. Verse 1. Abram's wife had borne him no children. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. And so she said to her husband Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. So, go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. So she's going to be a surrogate mother for them. Abram Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. 
Okay, let me point a couple things out before we get to the mess, okay? First thing is I want you to notice that Hagar is an Egyptian. Why is that a big deal? It's a big deal because in the first story we looked at back in chapter 12, the first story, one of the first screw-ups from Abram is he decides not to stay in the promised land, not to stay in Canaan. There's not enough rain. There's not enough crops. I'm out of here. And he heads to guess where? To Egypt. And it's in Egypt where he lies about his wife and he builds no altars to the Lord. And he ends up collecting an entourage of Egyptians, one of them being a really good-looking slave girl by the name of Hagar. And here's the point. Don't for one minute think that mistakes that we make four chapters ago in our life don't come back in our future to haunt us. This would never even have been a possibility had he not disobeyed God four chapters ago. Don't minimize the importance of small obedience to the Lord. Because how he messes up in chapter 16 is much bigger than how he messed up in chapter 12. But you know, it's like lies. You gotta say one lie to cover another lie to cover another lie, and it just gets bigger and bigger. That's how sin works. The sin in chapter 12 isn't as big as it is in chapter 16. So avoid chapter 12. Avoid the small sins. Make small steps of obedience to Jesus Christ. And this would have never even come up. Second thing I wanna point out is, uh, can you hear the sarcasm Can you hear the blaming in Sarah's tone when she says the Lord has kept me from having children? Is this a statement of the sovereignty of God? Is this Sarah saying God's got everything under control and I trust him and he knows what he's doing and, you know, he's good and he's great. Is that what she's doing here? No, she's mumbling underneath her mouth, uh, underneath her breath. This is God's fault. God didn't give me any children. We want kids. It's all God's fault. You see, if your perspective is off about God, this is where theology does matter. Don't think for one moment I'm saying belief doesn't matter. Theology and doctrine, what's between your two ears, what you understand about this book, the the characteristics of God, if that's off, if that's messed up, it'll cause you to think incorrectly, which will cause you to behave incorrectly. And that's what's going on with Sarah. Her theology about God is off. And when your theology of God is off, what you do is going to be off. And so she comes up with an idea. Here's what we're going to do, Abram. Why don't you sleep with my slave? She's going to be our surrogate mother. We're going to have kids through her. Now, this seems strange to us. This seems immoral to us, and it is. But I want to point out to you that in that culture, 3,500, 4,000 years ago, it was very normal. It was very normal. This is not an unusual thing that is happening in that day and age, in that culture. Okay? Now, here's here's what you need to understand, though. Just because culture says something's okay doesn't make it right. Does that make sense? Just because culture, just because our world says something's okay, something's fine, does not make it right. If Abram would have just taken the time to talk to God... Very quickly, and God, and he starts to reveal it to us as the book goes on, that having multiple spouses is not what God wants. That is not hard to figure out in the Bible. But Abram and Sarah go do their own thing. They don't even talk to God. They figure everybody's doing it. We might as well do it. So let's just kind of bring this down to to our culture and our society. This is clearly a passage that has sexual overtones. So let's just say there. Um, the world says, and our culture says, that it's perfectly okay to sleep with your boyfriend or girlfriend. It's just a natural progression of dating. You know, after the, what is it nowadays, the third or the fourth date? You know, if you're still together, that's not a bad deal. You know, it's just part of love. It's the physical expression of how I feel about you emotionally. That's what the world says. But just because culture says that does not make it acceptable. It doesn't make it acceptable. You know, um, living with your boyfriend or girlfriend is what the world says is the thing to do. And hey, it even makes sense. We're going to save on rent. We're going to put that to the side, buy a house. That doesn't make it right. And so what you need to do is as the world sends ideas to you through TV, through conversations, through whatever, you've got to sift it through God's word to make sure that what culture says is also what God says. Does that make sense? 
So be very careful. Just because everybody's doing it does not mean that it's the right thing to do. And then, of course, we come to the elephant in the room. The whole idea that Abram agrees to do what Sarah suggests. Now, um, a, a couple things here. Uh, the first thing is just the applicational point. We need to understand that God desires our obedience, not our assistance. Do you understand the difference? God says, okay, I'm going to show you how to live life. And, and once you understand that, your job is not to come up with plan B. Your job is not to figure out alternative paths. No, I don't want your help, says God. I want your obedience. Big difference, okay? Big difference. Um, now, another thing, and I, I don't know if it's just me, but to me, when Abram is having this discussion and listening to Sarah, what do you think he's doing? Do you think he's there? Okay, yep. Okay, babe. I mean, okay, well, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're you know, you're in your 70s. I'm in my 80s, and maybe we can't have kids anymore, and we certainly have to carry on our family line, and well, I guess if, I guess if that's all we can do, then I guess that's what we got to do, you know. Is it that? Or picture it. Sarah comes in. She brings uh, Hagar in. And, you know, there's Abram. Think Gandalf. There's Abram standing there with his, you know, he's 86, right? He's in his rocking chair, rocking back and forth. She's 76. Abram, Abram, turn up your hearing aid. What? He goes, you, you remember, you remember Hagar? Hagar's 24. She's got this nice tan. She goes to 24-hour fitness five times a week, so she's tight, you know? She's like, hey, Hagar, I got this idea. We can't have kids. Maybe you should take her in the tent, and we could have kids through her. And Abram's like, babe, I'm only doing this because of you, you know? <laughs> now, the fact that you laugh tells me you're thinking the same thing. Abram's sitting there going, yes, yes, which tells us that he's being selfish which is the root of all sin. This is not Abraham going, I think this is a pretty mature, well-thought-out idea. That is not what's going on here. Thank goodness, thank goodness that God can take our garbage and our mistakes. None of us have done this, have we? None of us have ever thought about this idea. Well, if God was able to do what he did through Abram, imagine what he can do through every one of us. And God comes to restore. But this turns into a mess. In one verse, chaos breaks out. And here's what happens in the family. Second part of verse 4 all the way to verse 6. When Hagar knew that she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms. And now that she knows that she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. In one verse, we have five issues. Let me show you the issues real quick. Let's put them up there. The first thing we have is we have pride. And it happens in Hagar. Here's what happens. Uh, she gets pregnant, right? And the minute she starts showing, right? It's just a little bit, a little bit of bump in the belly. It looks really cute. And the minute that starts happening, Abraham's being very helpful. Hagar, can I, don't, Hagar, don't pick up that, ba that, ba that basket of laundry. Put that down. Hagar, you don't need to work on the fields. Don't worry about that. Hagar, can I go to Safeway and get you pickles and peanut butter? What do you need me to do? And he starts kind of taking care of her like you should do if your spouse is pregnant, right? And Sarah's in the background. She's in the kitchen making the dinner. She hears all this. And Hagar knows that Sarah's listening to all this. And she gets pride. I guess I could do for Abraham what you couldn't do. Give him a boy. And you have this pride welling up in her. And then, of course, because of this, Sarah starts to blame. She, she talks, tells to Abraham, this is your fault. You're responsible. She, it, two verses ago, she seems to have forgotten that this was her suggestion. But now she's blaming Abraham for, for all that's going on. So Abraham's decision is to, to deflect the issue. Uh, pff, 
What, you know what? It's in your hands. Whatever you want to do about this problem, but I don't want anything to do with it. Whatever you decide, I'm fine with. And he abdicates his leadership and any kind of con- contribution to solving the problem. So Sarah does just that. And she starts to abuse Hagar and mistreats her. I don't know what this was. Maybe she emotionally mistreated her or she verbally mistreated her or she gave her chores that she didn't. She knew she didn't like to do. She probably didn't physically abuse her because she's carrying Abraham's child. But this was not nice. And finally, it comes to the point in time where Hagar can't take it anymore and she avoids the problem altogether and she just runs away and she flees into the desert. Now, I don't know about you. But when I disobey God, the same things happen. We get prideful and we actually start thinking we know better than God. Oh, we don't say it outwardly. This week I was teasing with my wife, Sandy. I was saying, you know, if I were God, there's one thing I'd do different. I'd have daylight savings uh, every Saturday, but not the way we just experienced the other way. Everybody gets 25 hours a week, a Saturday. Wouldn't that be good? Every Saturday. That's the best I can do. That's the best I can top God. And I was just joking. But in real life, every time we disobey God, we essentially are saying, I know better than you. I know. Now, I know what you said, but I know, God, you don't understand how difficult it is to live in the Bay Area in this day and age. You got an old book with old rules. I know better. It's called pride. And then when, when it starts to hit the fan and everything falls apart, then we blame other people. We blame our spouse, we blame the kids, we blame the boss, we blame the government, we blame the church, we blame God. It's always someone else. Yeah, no, I know I did it, but you made me do it. You hear that language? That's keeping therapists in business right there. And then we start to deflect. Yeah, no, I, I know, Sandy, I know we got this issue, but Sandy, do the best you can to fix it. Because if you screw up in fixing it and I don't have anything to contribute to it, then it's for sure it's not my fault. You see how it just grows? And then we start to abuse. We do that. We start to take it out on other people that had nothing to do with what we did. It's our fault and our life is falling apart. So we go to work and we take it out on them. And then we come back home and we take it out on the kids. And we just take it out on everyone else. And then eventually some of us just run. Who wants to deal with this? Who wants to be mature about it? Let's just get out of here. And we avoid it altogether. I don't know about you, but that's exactly what I do. Thank goodness. Thank goodness that God doesn't leave me in this state. And to wrap up the story, and here's what we read in verse 7 through 9. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that was beside the road of Shur, and she said, Hagar, and he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, what, where have you come from and where, where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. And then the angel of the Lord told her, go back. Go back to your mistress and submit to her. Now, I, I emphasize the first word, the, because it's the most important word in this verse. Two times it refers to this, this angel as the angel of the Lord, not an angel of the Lord. You go, why is that such a big deal? Because in the Old Testament, that's code for Jesus. This is Jesus right here. You go, well, wait a minute. I think Jesus didn't show up and he wasn't born until the gospel of Matthew. Well, that's when he became a man. But see, Jesus is a member of the Trinity and like the Holy Spirit and God the Father, he's existed forever. And so whereas he's the hero and the main character in the New Testament, every once in a while he shows up in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. And there are little hints, like, for example, you were not allowed to bow down and worship an angel. And so sometimes when angels would show up and, and we people would like, oh, my goodness, let's worship them. The angels would go, no, 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 no. Get up, get up, get up. You're not allowed to worship me. Only God is allowed to be worshipped. Except when the angel shows up, guess what he tells him? Down. Worship. Because I am the incarnate God. This is Jesus showing up right here. And you know what's so encouraging to me? Is that when I end up in a desert, when you end up in a desert, and you're alone, and you're discouraged, Jesus always comes looking for you. And some of you today feel like you're in a desert. You feel like, 
you know what, I know, I, I know I did some stuff and I can't take it back and I feel, I know. And you need to know Jesus is coming to your aid. Now, that, that's the good part. If you're wanting to jot down notes, though, he, here's the last thing I'm going to have you write down is this idea that Jesus always comes to help us, but rarely does he fix everything. Do you understand the difference? He's going to come to help us, but rarely does he fix everything. Wouldn't it have been nice if Jesus shows up and he waves a magic wand and then he says to Hagar, it's all fixed. Go back and everything's going to be great. He doesn't do that. Rarely does he ever, ever do that. He's, there's a kid coming. He's not going to get rid of the kid. You see, there's a difference between Jesus forgiving you and Jesus restoring you. And Jesus redeeming what is inside of you. But not changing what's around you. God will fix what's inside of you. But rarely does he fix what's around you. Because you see what's around me I've caused. And that mistake I made last year is going to stick with me. And that conviction that I had is on the records is going to stay with me. And that kid that I had out of wedlock is going to stay with me. And that marriage that I screwed up is going to stay with me. And that job that I got fired at because I did what I did is going to stay with me. And God says, I'll fix what's inside of you. I'll restore you. But you have to understand that part of living this faith journey is that you've got to go back. Don't be upset at me because your, your world still isn't that great. Yet you cause most of that world. You cause that. And God doesn't take those consequences away. He restores what's inside. But he says, go back and live with it. and Don't avoid it. And do the best that you can. And the last two verses we're going to read to show you how this mess went on forever is these right here. The angel added, I will. He's talking to Hagar still. The angel added, I will increase your descendants. So much that they will be too numerous to count. And the angel of the Lord also said to her, Hagar, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son and you will name him Ishmael. If you're interested in just a little detail, this is the first person born in the Bible that was given a name before they were born. Ishmael. That's how important it is. For the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone. Now, I want you to understand Abraham has two first sons. Eventually, he remarries after Sarah dies and he has more kids. But his first two sons, the first was Ishmael. He's just about ready to be born. Hagar is the mother. He becomes the father of all the Arab nations and all their descendants. All the Arab people in the world today, every single one of them look back to Ishmael and thereby Abraham as their where their whole nation started, where their whole people group started. The very next son to be born to Abram is a a kid by the name of Isaac. And he becomes the father of all the Jewish people in their nation. These two boys, like a lot of siblings, fought like crazy. But their fighting went on and on and on. And when you turn on the TV today or you pick up a newspaper and you read about the Arab Jewish conflict around the world, it goes back to Genesis chapter 16. Let me ask you a question. How much did this screw up last Abraham? 4,000 years. 4,000 years. Now, just a little tidbit, and I'm going to wrap it up with this. I just find it interesting. And for the life of me, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask. Why God says what he says to Hagar about Ishmael. Did you catch what he says? He says, two, two th- I just find this kind of, he says, he, right at the bottom, he, your son, will be a wild donkey of a man. Literally, one translation is, he's going to be a jackass. I'm not saying that as a bad word, that, as an animal. Why do you say that to a mother? I mean, we've all met people like that, but you don't tell them. And then he says, His hand will be against everyone. Now that I understand. Imagine Ishmael going to kindergarten, going to grade school. He's in third grade. You know, who's your daddy? 
My daddy's Abraham. Oh, your daddy is Abraham, the father of the father. That's right. My daddy's Abraham. You know, and then Isaac comes running up. Hey, wait, wait. You're the boy that was born from that affair that he had with that slave girl. And it smells like. That is whole life. That's his whole life. Here's how I'm going to wrap it up. God asked Abraham, trust me, obey me. And every time Abraham did, he blessed them greatly. And every time he didn't, there were consequences. I want you to think about your life now. And I'm going to ask you one concluding and final question. Where does God want you to trust him? Where does God want you to obey him? Let's close in prayer. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I want you to take a moment to just think about that. I want you to think about those times in your life and in your past where you have trusted God and what he's done through that. And also take a moment to think about those times you haven't obeyed him and how that's turned out. While God can forgive you for your past, he will not always take away the consequences from your past decisions. The good news is you can change going forward. So take a moment, you and God, what does he want you to trust him with? Where does he want you to obey? Heavenly Father, as I studied this week, these two chapters in this story, I know what you impressed upon me. I always had this idea that every time that I mess up and every time that I sin, it affects me, and I, and I get that. And it affects other people around me, and I understand that. I just, I kind of had this idea that after a while it goes away, though. I certainly understood and believed that after I'm gone it doesn't carry on into my family's life and, and yet in these, this story you reminded me through the life of Abraham that my sin can live on for generations in my family if I don't get certain areas of control in my life I'll pass it on to Joshua and Jessica and Julia and they will pass it on to my grandkids and they will pass it on to their kids and it could go on forever in the fossil line and I don't like that and I guess you reminded me how serious sin is even what we consider to be those small sins like going to Egypt didn't seem to be that big a deal but it ended up creating a horrible mess Father, I pray that you would convict us of those small areas in our life that we need to obey you. Not just the big ones, but also the small ones, Father. Father, I pray that you would make us a people of faith. That we would genuinely trust you. That we would genuinely obey you, even when it's uncomfortable. And even when we've got questions, especially when it's difficult. That we would be like Abraham in verse 6. He believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if you're here today and you've never had a verse 6 experience, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord, as your Savior, I want to encourage you and invite you to do that right now. I want to ask you in your heart, just you and God, to pray this simple prayer. Dear God, as best as I know how, with the little amount of faith that I have right now, I trust in your son, Jesus Christ. I trust him to be the savior of my, of my soul. I trust him because of the cross to forgive me of my sins. 
And from this day forward, I'm going to do the best I can to obey you. Heavenly Father, where we, whether we prayed that prayer for the first time this morning or we pray, prayed it years ago, remind us that faith is not just something that starts in verse 6, but it continues on with us as a journey for the rest of our life. And we can make a decision to embrace Jesus as Savior and then down the road take a detour and stop trusting you and stop obeying you. Father, for every one of us that have taken that detour, help us get back on that highway. Help us get back on the journey of faith and trusting you. Even when the circumstances don't make sense, like Abraham, it didn't make sense. It didn't make sense that an 86-year-old could have a kid. Trust us in those difficult situations anyway. Help us trust you and obey you even when there's consequences. Even when people make fun of us even when it costs us in our career, even when it costs us financially, even when it costs some of our brothers and sisters around the world, it costs them their very life. Father, make us a people of faith. Make us like Abraham. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people say. It's our hope that today's podcast has enriched your life and answered questions you may have had. If you'd like more information about what was said in this podcast or about Bay Hills Community Church, you can reach us on the Internet at www.bayhills.net. Bay Hills, located in El Sobrante, California, is radically committed to reaching the unchurched in the Bay Area and to developing believers into fully devoted followers of Christ. Thanks again for listening.